Good morning, all. So we're at the end of the Lord's Prayer today. We've been going through it for several weeks. Um, Alex likes to give me the, the closing sermons on certain things. I think it's because he can't handle the pressure of closing. Um, I'm thinking maybe his ERA is too high or something. I'm not sure what it is. Or maybe it's that I can't handle preaching every week, and so he gives me one sermon and thinks, okay, he can do that at least. I'm not sure which one it is. Okay, thank you. He's all the way up there, so he gets to throw all kinds of lobs down at me today. So we've been discussing prayer for several weeks and using the Lord's Prayer kind of as a model to walk through what prayer can be like. Um, and maybe think of when I used to pray as a child, because this is a memorized prayer, one of the first we learn, isn't it? And as a child, prayer was, for me, an act of fear. Basically, I had to pray the right thing every night. Exactly a certain kind of prayer, this prayer, and then I had added some on, you know, specifically to keep my family alive, because if I didn't pray right, somebody was going to die. It's funny, but that was what I thought. It was out of fear. It was kind of like I was afraid of it being like the scene in Spider-Man 3, in Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man, not the latest one, where Aunt May's praying. If anybody has seen this. And she's on her knees saying the Lord's Prayer, and as soon as she gets to the line of deliver us from evil, the Green Goblin breaks in from behind and, like, carries her off. And she's, you know, very afraid and on the ground screaming. That's what I was afraid of. If I didn't get this quite right, like, obviously she didn't get it right. This is what's going to happen to me or somebody. It's all on me, right? My prayer. I hope that's not how you're feeling. Either because of your upbringing or because of the sermon series. I don't think it is because of the sermon series. But I haven't said any of the sermons, so it's not my fault. Um, we started the sermon series looking at God as Father. And how this is a prayer of intimacy. Hey, Dad, I have some things I need to say, and I need you, and I want to talk to you. Is how this prayer opens. This prayer is powerful not because of its exactness, but because of its intimacy, right from the start. We also heard about how this is a radical prayer when my wife preached, how this is a prayer that God's will be done, that we are under his kingship. And that's particularly radical in self-made American society because we're saying somebody knows better than me. And I need that somebody to tell me what to do, to tell me what wisdom is. That's somebody who knows all of space and time. And that's the kingdom I live in. That's the priority kingdom. Then we heard from Alex again about the many layers that are in a good biscuit, right? Like the great British baking show. You have to fold that dough. Or I don't know how she does it. My daughter makes really good biscuits. She's the one who showed me has layers. But that line, he said, has so many layers about our daily bread. It's about our daily needs. It's about our daily anxieties. It's about coming to God in both humility and trust, that every breath we take is from him and that he provides it. And ultimately, the daily bread is Jesus Christ himself, as he is the bread of life. We don't always get the physical things that we need. There's plenty of evidence for that in the world. But God is with us every day and wants to speak with us every day, and wants to hear the smallest of needs that we think we need to be brought to him. 
because he's the provider. And finally, last week we heard on forgiveness. And to be fair, that to be fair, that is really the only sermon we have to say. We only have one sermon in this church, all of us. It's about forgiveness. It's about God forgiving us. It's about the promise of forgiving all our sins. And this line about being forgiven for our trespasses, being set free from our debts, is more recognition of what God has already done, which sets us free to then forgive others, which releases them from that burden. And so now, I've successfully written a quarter of my sermon without saying anything that I have to say. I've quoted everybody else. So we get to this passage about temptation and evil. Now let's just get one thing out of the way. As we read from James, it says, lead us not into temptation. God never leads us into temptation. Okay? James is clear about that. He is not the source of temptation. So this isn't as um, opposed to leading us into temptation, lead us away. It's just that he is the only one who can lead us away. So let's just make sure we get that out of the way so we don't misunderstand the passage and get into what temptation is itself. Now, how many people here have any idea what temptation is? Ever experienced it once, maybe five minutes ago, like over by the cookies out there, perhaps? Temptation is everywhere. And as a very broad definition, which covers everything, it's the desire for something or to do something that we should not have or do. So, you know, I'm just going to pad my expense report a little bit because I should be paid more, so I'll get it back this way. Right? That's a temptation. I'll just, you know, have that cookie or I'll just have another drink. But temptation isn't actually the same for all people. The way it specifically manifests itself is pretty customized. You know, it's not one size fits all. It's that we've got a size for everybody. So what it, for one person, is a glass of wine with dinner is just that. A glass of wine with dinner. Tastes good. My family owns a winery, so this is part of my life, and we have a glass of wine with dinner. For somebody else, that glass of wine with dinner becomes a three-month bender that they wake up from in the hospital. Two very different experiences. Now, that being said, that person who, for whom it's just a glass of wine, they might have 12 donuts for breakfast. While the person who can't have the glass of wine has no desire for any sort of pastry, which is unbelievable, but has like a super green smoothie every morning, and that's all they care about. That's, they love it. They have no desire for overeating or sweets. So you see how it can look different in different people. Now, that being said, I do have to provide a mild rebuke to last week's sermon. I'm sorry, Alex. There is nothing inherently wrong with eating a deviled egg. <laughs> I do believe this is one of those specific things that our rector has to deal with, and that some of you may. So actually, during the 8 o'clock, we decided it's too late for him to be anonymous. We're going to actually start a, a deviled egg anonymous group somewhere, and <laughs> if you find the need, go speak to him about the evils of deviled eggs, because... I'm giving you the official permission to eat them. Unless it's wrong for you. Or you already had a donut. 
Anyway. <laughs> so temptation, you know, we see this with bad things, but it can even be the desire to do a good thing, but in the wrong way. So I think of the first Lord of the Rings movie when Frodo, I know a movie reference everyone gets. Um, Frodo is approached by Gandalf after Gandalf has found out that he probably has the One Ring. They find out it is the One Ring, and Frodo's immediate response is, here, I don't want this, you take it. And Gandalf quivers in fear and says, don't tempt me. For I would desire to do good, but through me would come great evil. He wanted to fix everything. He wants good to win. But he recognizes that by taking the ring, he would be taking the place of the creator, trying to fix everything on his own, becoming God himself, which is not his place. It's a temptation to do something good, but it still would corrupt him. So, temptation is everywhere, inescapable, it's universal, you don't have to be religious. Anybody trying to lose five pounds knows that. It's just there. Now, the interesting thing about this word is that it can also be translated as time of trial or time of testing. Now, I think every temptation can be classified as a time of trial. It feels oppressive. It's hard. It's difficult. It feels like a pass or fail test. But sometimes a time of trial is just that, a time of trial. And for some people in the world, this line is better translated to be delivered from the time of trial. Any parent whose children are taken away unless they convert away from Christianity can attest that they're not being tempted but tested. Let's move on to the next line as we try to figure out how we're supposed to think about that talk about evil. Now, I'm not going to go through the definition of evil because, well, I think we all kind of have a feeling of what it is. But rather, I want to just talk about how this word can also be translated a couple different ways that are related to one another. It can just mean evil or evil thing or a generic kind of evil in the world. The evil within us or the evil done to us. And it can also be translated as evil one. I mean, where does the temptation come from? Where does the brokenness in the world come from? Who was there at the very first record of temptation? Satan himself. So what does this mean then, these two lines? Does it mean lead us away from temptation in the evil that comes from sinning or the evil one who causes me to be tempted or the, deliver us from the evil in the world and the trials it causes, something in between all these, to borrow again from my rector, I think we can say all of them. All we have to do is go back to the Exodus and see how these can be all related. The Exodus is the Israel's story of being saved by God from what? Evil oppression, the land of Egypt. But who was running the land of Egypt? But the evil one, Pharaoh, who wouldn't let them go. But who's behind Pharaoh? Well, go back to our old friend Satan. 
And he leads them out of that, protecting them. And then they go into a time of trial and temptation in the desert, where they succeed magnificently and resist everything. No. Where they fail continually, almost every time. Isn't this relatable? All right, God, I'm following you. You're leading me, and, whoa, man. My son just asked me if I'd had one of those quadruple stuffed Oreos. I love double stuff. I can only imagine how good that is. There it is. Whatever it is for you. We fail again and again, and we hurt people again and again, and we get hurt again and again. So as a child, praying in fear, and then growing into my teenage years, and praying in fear, this exact prayer, people still died. But I thought if I did this exactly right, everything would be okay. Guess not. Especially hurting others, eventually. How do we deal with this? Well, let's look at what the passage doesn't say. I think a lot of us might pray this passage like this. God, let me have the strength to resist this temptation. Help me persevere through this. Give me what I need. But that's not what this says. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying don't pray that when you're in the midst of temptation. I will never say that when you're in the midst of temptation, stop talking to God because that's wrong. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that's not what's said here in this prayer. Because in this prayer, who is the active agent in these passages? Who is the one who leads? Who is the one who delivers? It's not give me the strength but let me not be led into it in the first place. I mean, what addict wouldn't rather pray, release me completely from the desire, or whatever it might be, than give me the strength to resist the temptation every minute it comes? Which sounds more like freedom to you? I've seen this in everyday life in the funniest of ways. I was taking a technical course once, um, and it's a week-long course on networking, not that that's important. But the leader of the course was standing in front of the soda fridge, which you could just go to and take a soda from at this facility. And this was, his whole body language was like this. I was like, are you okay? And he said, yeah, it's just in, in my religion, the body is a holy place, and uh, you shouldn't put anything into it that's bad for you. And I want a soda, but I, I shouldn't have that because it's bad for me. But I want a soda. Oh, good for him. He didn't have one that day. He had five that week. Again, does that sound like someone who's free? even though he had the strength to resist the temptation that one time. 
Because this prayer is not about giving us strength to resist the temptations on our own, but about recognizing the fact that we don't have that strength. We know that if we are in that space, we will lose eventually. The evil one is too smart and too powerful and too tricky. A great literary example of this is in the sequel to The Shining called Dr. Sleep, written by Stephen King, who is a recovering addict himself. And this book is really about alcoholism and addiction. It's framed in a story about psychic vampires, but that's not what the story is actually about. <laughs> and the main character is the son of the guy in The Shining, and he, instead of falling to his alcoholism, has found Alcoholics Anonymous. And he's, you know, a hero, he's kind, he's passionate, he has gone through his addiction and found his way out, he's in the midst of trying to save this young girl from psychic vampires. And on his drive back, I think it's home, he passes by a bar. And without even the hint of resistance, he pulls in. Starts to get out of the car, thinking about how good it will feel to have a big pitcher of beer and to listen to the music. He's been clean for almost a decade. And yet, this temptation comes and wins without any resistance. And I believe it's one of the members of his anonymous group calls him. Doesn't know why. And he ends up not going in which reminds him of the story that his sponsor said, which is that no matter how many things we put in place that are good things, the counseling, the meetings, the, you know, the rule of life that keep us from alcohol, there are times where the only thing that saves you from your next drink is God. Nothing within yourself. I would argue every time. <laughs> but sometimes it's really just self-evident. Here he is, completely vulnerable to temptation. After that many years of working on this, he gives in like that. But God leads him away. This is a prayer of freedom, not of fear. This is a prayer said both in the freedom we experience today as we're ministered to by Christ as we remember his cross, but also the freedom that we look forward to that we haven't quite gotten to, but we see hints of all the time. We are free to call God Father and to approach him without fearing the throne of grace. We are living in a kingdom of freedom, not oppression. We are free from the fear of approaching God with daily needs and thinking that he doesn't care. But that he actually wants us in humility to approach him every day with anything. We are free from our debts, from our sins. We are free from that load of unforgiveness that we carry for ourselves and for others, which makes us free to forgive people. And let go of the bitterness that we've been carrying for however long. And we are free 
from temptation and trial, from the influence of evil within ourselves and the hurt from outside. We will be completely free from compulsion. Every tear will be wiped away. And we know that because of the cross. Because the cross declares God's love for us which cuts the evil one's knees out from under him. Makes his power zero. We're out of his kingdom and in another because of the freedom that the cross brings. Amen.